Good morning. You know, for the past few months you've been listening to me speak, so I'm going to give you an opportunity for just, for just a couple of minutes. Uh, we just finished Christmas Day yesterday, didn't we? Did you all have a good Christmas? If you did, breathe air. <laughs> Tell you what, uh, just, all you got to do is just raise your hand. If it's true, if it's true, raise your hand. How many of you had such a wonderful Christmas this past yesterday that uh, God was just in it and God did something wonderful in your life this Christmas season? If God did something wonderful in your life this Christmas season, let's, let's see your hand. Let's see your hand. Oh, look, there are, there are several of you. See, God's still working, isn't he? Well, I tell you what. We need to get a witness, don't we? Who'd be willing to come up here and tell us what a wonderful thing God has done for you? Okay, Carla, you've got to come up here. You've got to use the mic. Thank God for Jesus, and I thank God for my Christian family and my sweet husband. All right. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. I need, I need another person to share. Come on, come on up. Come on up. Come on up. Let's see people raising their hands. You know, some people say that uh, they have two fears in life, death and speaking. <laughs> Come on up. I want to I hear what a, a witness say. I knew one of those hell wigs would come up. I just <laughs> feel it in your blood. Sure you can. Well, God blessed us with a brand new great-grandbaby. And poor Zay was in the hospital for three days before she had the baby. And uh, they're coming home today, and here comes the grandma and grandpa <laughs> coming in the door right now. But we're so thankful for this new life. And she's a, just a beautiful, beautiful baby. We Amen. thank God. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we, we, we live in a world that uh, many people say that there is no God. Uh, or if they say that there is a God, this God is so distant that you really can't know him. Uh, but that's not true, is it? There's, there's a God that works in the lives of people. And, and, uh, and every day, you know, we, we just, because we have ordinary things happen to us, we feel that those are just coincidences, coincidences that happen. Uh, but God orchestrates his way in our lives. Uh, in such a way, sometimes we just forget that God is, that God is moving, God is working. And, and uh, sometimes we brush God to the side. It's kind of like uh, the passage we're going to read here in just a few moments. That God... Uh, God was in the presence of some people. And, and these people decided, even though God was in their presence, and they saw God doing things in their lives, that they thought that maybe they needed to get God out. It reminds me of the story of uh, when, when Jesus went to the land of the Gadarenes. 
And you remember the, the crazed man was there in the cemetery and he was naked and running around and, and people were afraid of him. And when, when Jesus went to the, the shores of the Gadarenes and met this, this lunatic man, when he met Jesus, sanity came to him. And the people of the community, when they saw what had happened, you would think that they would get around God and just say, thank you, Jesus. But what did they ask him to do? They asked him to get out. You know, they were more concerned about the, the herd of pigs that went into the sea than they were about the crazed man who became sane. It seems like our priorities are really just fouled up, aren't they? Well, if you would turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 5, you'll meet people just like this, who God was in the presence, they saw God doing things, and they, they, they refused to acknowledge Him as God. But in, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, if you want to follow along, please do so. It says in, in 1 Samuel 5, 6, it says, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and He ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of, the, of God of Israel around. And after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city with very great confusion. And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own people so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. What a sorrowful story that is, isn't it? What a sad story. They refused to acknowledge God in the presence, so God uh, acknowledged His presence for them. But let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, may we learn today to acknowledge that there is a God. And Father, the God whom we serve is, is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons and one God. The triune God, the Trinity. Father, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you, Father, that, that uh, you'll never leave nor forsake us. Father, we thank you that we can be a fruitful people in a, in a parched and thirsting land. Now, Lord, as we look at your word, enlighten our hearts, illumine our minds to understand your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 1 through 5 of this chapter, we saw... Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, before we got into the Christmas time, but we saw how God had brought ruin to the image of the Philistine god Dagon. Remember how he this this half fish, half 
human torso, uh, kind of looked like a, a mermaid, but a male version of a mermaid, uh, how it fell before the ark of God and just busted into pieces. But now as we look at verses 6 through 12, we see that it was not only Dagon upon which God had brought devastation, it was also upon the Philistine nation. In verse 6, in verse six it, it states that he that is God ravaged them and smote them with tumors. Now, you know, your Bible may not give you full definition of this, and, and many won't. But uh, these tumors, in the Hebrew, the word is opel. And these tumors uh, uh, were uh, affected a person's hinder parts, let's say. Not only were they affected with these tumors, but it is evident as you continue to read through 1 Samuel and you get into chapter 6, that you find that the that the hand of uh, that the land was also under the curse of what you would understand to be as the bubonic plague. So here is this bubonic plague, and and we know it's bubonic plague because uh, the, and I'll show you in just a minute. Because as there were mice in this land, and and mice or these rats are are one of the the the, the for sure signs that there is plague. Not only was this bubonic plague, but there is this, this, these tumors affecting a person's body, the, the backside of them. And, and could you imagine how annoying and how deadly that would be of both this tumor and this plague happening and people are dying and, and people are unable to function properly. In Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 17... And there's evidence given of what this would be like uh, when, when the Lord says, The Lord will smite you with the, uh, with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. A miserable plight. Death was in the camp. They, they brought this ark of God in and they wanted to put it in their place where they could show that it, it became uh, subservient to their God, to Dagon. And all the time, they, they're beginning to realize that it was really the ark of God that was above all that they had in the land. But what is more amazing than this is they looked at this box and thought it was just that, that the ark. It wasn't the ark. It's, the ark is a thing. It wasn't the ark. That ark was made by human people. Now, it was evidence of God's presence, but it wasn't the ark. It is God himself that was their problem. The ark was just a golden box. It was a wooden box covered with gold. Now, it would be worth millions and millions of dollars today, probably billions. But it wasn't the ark. It was, it was what the ark represented. And they wanted it out of their sight. If they can get rid of the ark, they can get rid of the presence of God. So they thought. The issue is this, friends. When a people fail to recognize and honor the glory of God, then they will, at God's own timing, feel the weight of his hand. And that's true for everybody. It doesn't matter if it was then or today. When people fail to recognize that there is a God... 
and they think that they could spurn God at, 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 at any turn, at every turn, then, then God will eventually let them know who's in charge, and they will feel the weight of his wrath. It is God's desire, my friends, that people everywhere come to the realization that he is a holy God. You know, one of his attributes is God is holy. That God is holy and his word is to be honored. When that word is not received, when, when the word is not received, then ultimately destruction will occur. And even though we live in 2021, soon to be 2022, and there are people all over this world who absolutely reject any idea of the God whom we serve or the God of the Bible, they absolutely reject that. Might I tell you of, of what Peter writes of in, in 1 Peter 2.8, because we believe that God's word is infallible, don't we? It is the inerrant word. It is perfect in every way. God's word does not fail. When God says something, God fulfills what he says. His, his promises are true. But 1 Peter 2.8, Peter writes, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Listen, when people reject who God is, when people reject his word, the Bible says they are what? They are appointed to doom. As far as the Philistines, we read in verse 12. I want to start in verse 12 and kind of work my way around this passage because verse 12 is kind of the, it leads up to this whole thing. It says, the cry of the city went up to heaven. The cry of the city went up to heaven. The disease that came upon the Philistines was epidemic. Now, you are familiar with epidemics, aren't you? Now we call them pandemics. In the past two years, all over this world, all over this world, it don't matter what nationality, what country, don't matter any of that, but in the past two years, we have heard so much about the matter of a virus that is epidemic. Pandemic, as they call it. This pestilence, this illness brings fear to many. There are people fearful of it. People are afraid of it. Not only does it give us fear or present fear, but it also brings ruin to an economy. Name one nation whose economy grew because of this virus. I mean, who is saying, boy, we need another one of those? I mean, look at even our nation. It brings fear. It ruins an economy. And for some, most unfortunately, it led to death. There is nothing good about a pestilence. Philistia was well acquainted also with a pestilence that was a cause of fear and destruction 
and death. As you, underst- as you understand it, they understood it also. Listen, they experienced, they experienced the power of God over their so-called God. They experienced the power of God as it afflicted them with tumors and boils of the body. And they experienced their own inability to remedy their dire situation. You cannot fix what God has poured out in wrath upon your people. We cannot undo what God has decreed to do. It's impossible. Whatever, whatever you might do, you say, God, we want to get rid of you. We want to get rid of it. Listen, there is no human being alive. There is not even Satan and all of his minions. All of the hosts of hell, nor all the hosts of heaven can thwart the decreed will of God. When God says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. Yet even though, even though they acknowledged the might and power of God, because they did acknowledge the might and power of God, they refused to renounce, even though they knew it, they knew what God was doing, they refused to renounce their lame God for the God of creation, for the God of Israel. They would rather curse him to his face then yield to him as the one true God. And we find the same, the same attitude in the people of the world as God pours out his wrath upon them in the end time. You know, there's a time coming, and I just believe with all of my heart we're so close to it. I, I think that we've just opened the door and we're ready to cross that threshold into the eternity to come. But before that happens, there is going to come a time when, when the church of Jesus Christ is taken up. And those who are unregenerate, the unsaved, the carnal people of this world will be left behind. And the wrath of God will fill, will fill their cities and fill their streets. And there will be death and destruction and doom everywhere. And they will see the hand of God against them. And rather than renouncing their evil deeds, they will look to heaven and shake their fist at God and listen to what it says in Revelation 16, 11. And they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Would you not think that when everything is going wrong in your life, when death and destruction and pain and sores have filled you and your body and your household, that you would turn to God and repent of your sin. But no, no. They will shake their fist at God. The carnal mind will always refuse to acknowledge God because they are totally unable to do so. We have many today who continually strive to convince this world that humanity somehow has this innate ability to turn to God of its own free will. Good luck with that. I cannot find anywhere in Scripture that says by your own, by your own free will you can just willy-nilly turn to God whenever you want. You say, well, preacher, I don't believe it. I think that we, we can go to God at any time we want to. 
Well, let me share some verses with you that is contrary to that thinking. There's a problem that we have, first of all. One of the problems that we have is because we are human beings, and we especially, especially when we are affluent human beings, especially that, that we somehow think that we are autonomous, that we are able to self-govern. You know, there's not a passage in Scripture that tells you you can be autonomous and a self-governed person. That's exactly what Eve wanted to do in the garden. Are you aware of that? She says, if I eat this forbidden whatever it is, whatever that fruit was, you know, maybe it was giant watermelons going from a huge tree. I have no idea what it was. But she says, if I eat this, if I eat this fruit, then I could be wise. I could know the difference of good and evil and so on and so forth. And, and man, that fruit really looks good to eat. I could do this, and I could do that, and I will know the difference of good, and I will know what is bad. I, 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 I. Well, you know what happens. That attitude of self-dependence, self-governance, autonomy, led her down the road to doom, didn't it? Let me share some scriptures with you. Let me ask you this. Does scripture teach us that we can determine our own destiny? Let me give you a couple passages. In the book of Romans... Now, I'm assuming, you should never assume, I know, but I'm assuming that you are here because you believe that there's a God, and that God's Word is final, God's Word is truth, that you would never argue with God's Word. Well, let me read this for you from the book of Romans. If you think that we can just willy-nilly turn to God whenever we want Let me read this to you from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. And it says, as it is written, there is none, none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now, does that sound like we have, you know, we can determine our own destiny? Does that sound like we are, we are self-dependent? Does that sound to you like we have all kinds of free will to do whatever we want to do anytime we want to do it? it? Sounds to me like we're in a mess, doesn't it? It sounds to me like we're about as bad off as we can possibly be. Not that we're as bad as we can be, but we're as, spiritually we're as bad off as we can be. Because it says all and none, over and over and over again, that I'm in this position, you're in this position, that all of us or none of us have this ability to turn to God. 
Well, let's not stop there. Uh, let me, if you would, if you would turn to the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 2, and I've, I shared this verse with you before, but let me do it again because sometimes reiteration is a, is a good way of learning. But in, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That does not draw a pretty picture for us. It tells us again that I cannot control my destiny. That I cannot govern myself. That I am not self-dependent where I don't need anybody apart from myself. It tells me that I'm in a sticky wicket. In Ephesians 2.12, again, Paul says, having no hope and without God in the world. That's us. In 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4, listen, listen to what Paul writes to the church of Corinth. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That means that we can't understand it. It's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Miserable condition. As that great theologian, Jed Clampett once said, pitiful, pitiful. Friends, listen. When we are without Christ in our lives... We're as bad off spiritually as we possibly can ever be. Without Christ, no one has the ability to turn to God on his or her own power. You can't. Our hope does not lie in our ability to save ourselves or to seek God out of our own desire. This is a Baptist church. I'm assuming that most of you are Baptists. Now, you probably don't read Presbyterian material. However, let me say this, that there's a deep relationship between Baptists and Presbyterians. Kind of like kissing cousins. In the Westminster Catechism, if some of you are Presbyterians, you should know this. In the Westminster Catechism, it, it asks the question, because a, a catechism gives a question, and then there's a response. Okay, this is the answer. But here's the question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief aim of man? If you ask that question to somebody in the world, they're going to say, to climb the ladder. Whatever ladder that is, they're going to climb it. You know, the thing is, you, you need to realize that without Christ, you're not climbing it up, you're climbing it down. <laughs> You're going down the ladder, okay? It's kind of like chutes and ladders. You know, you're, on a, you're not on a ladder, you're on a chute, and you're heading down. 
The chief aim of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There is not a carnal-minded person in this world that would understand that. Ain't going to happen. A lost person does not say that the goal of my life is to glorify God. Maybe glorify themselves or maybe use other people as an object in order to increase their own popularity or fame or, or economy. But they're not interested in glorifying God, nor are they interested in enjoying God. But that's what you and I ought to be doing. That's who we ought to be. People that, that want to glorify God and enjoy God. Enjoy being with God. Getting up in the morning and recognizing that God has sustained you through the night. That you get up in the morning and God is with you. Is that not the pleasure of your life? To know that God is with you? Listen to the words of God in this matter. When all is lost, when all is lost, when all hope is gone, we have this word from God to rescue us out of our spiritual darkness because only God can do that. When everything looks bleak and dark and dismal, we have this word of hope from God. And again, I know I've shared this with you, but I'm going to share it with you again. Because I want you to really believe this. I want you to understand this. There are two words. Two words in Ephesians 2.4. That no matter what is happening in your life. No matter if, if all of hell itself has opened its doors up. And you're facing it dead on. There's these two words. That ought to just raise the banner toward Christ and raise your hands to the Lord and say, thank you, Jesus. And those two words are, but God. But God. No matter what's happened in your life, there's but God. And it says, but God loved us. But God made us alive. But God raised us up. But God seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And only God can do that. You cannot do that. I do not have the moral ability to do that. But God does. When I was dead and lost in sin, God loved me. God quickened me. God gave me life. God raised me up and God seated me in heavenly places. I want to go to back to verse 7 of our text. This verse tells us exactly what the carnal mind desires the most. It desires to be released from the Convicting presence of God. Verse 7 says, The ark of God must not remain with us. Let's get God out. Let's get God out of here. That's what they wanted. Let's remove any sense of God's presence from this place. So let me ask, why would the people who live of and for this world want to escape from God. Why do people want to escape from God? The answer is simple. I shared it with you before. Because they want to be in control. They want to control themselves. Control their future. Control their destiny. They have absolutely no trust in the providence of God. 
when you go through pain in your life, when you go through painful experiences, when you, when you go through some physical illness, I, again, I think I'll share this with you, but let me share this with you again. Years ago, when I had cancer surgery, and I was able to get back into church again, I sat in the back of the auditorium with my wife. I sat in the back and listened to the preacher preaching, listened to the people singing. What joy flooded my soul to hear the word of God, to hear the voices praising God. It, it, was, it was like, it was like, a, a, like a good medicine. See, in spite of whatever, whatever affects and, or afflicts your body or your mind or your heart, whatever situation you're going through, folks, understand something. There's a providence of God that works in your lives. And sometimes God brings us through that valley of the shadow of death in order that when we get out on the other side, we understand how beautiful it is. That God, in spite, in spite of all the evil that could be turned against you, that God has brought you through something. And folks, sometimes we need to go through some things in order to get to some place. Who does this world belong to? Who does this world belong to? Or I might ask it this way. Who has dominion or power in this world? And I have people say, well, God does. Well, I suppose, but there's somebody else. There's somebody else that has power and dominion in this world. Listen to what Jesus says in John 12, 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's he talking about? He's not talking about God. He's talking about Satan. The ruler of this world is the devil. Jesus is speaking of Satan. He is the ruler of this world. The unsaved person lives under the ruling power of the devil. Your, your mind, your will, and your emotions are all energized and under the dominion of the devil. Paul, again, in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, says that Satan is the god of this world. Think of this, a person who is carnal, who is unsaved, their mind, their will, and their emotions are not theirs. They are energized by Satan. Yeah, you're still alive, but there is, there is an issue of death over you. What you do is all under control of Satan. Satan. He is the ruler of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. And, and man, folks, if I can get you to believe that and understand that, that only Jesus Christ can deliver you from that. But instead, many people say, get him out of here. When you try to share the gospel with you, I don't want to hear that. Because that person belongs to Satan. They're in bondage to him. You're in bondage to him, and then when you die, you belong to him forever, in eternity. You abandon all hope when you enter his domain. 
I think it most important to us in our considering the ark of God itself. Now, we talked about the Philistines and what they've done. We talked about ourselves and how we think that we can rescue ourselves. But let's look at the ark of God for just a moment. Verse 10 of our text says this. In the final line, it says this. They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. So they think God is here to kill us. The Ark of the Covenant had within it two stones, two tablets. And on these two tablets were what? The Ten Commandments, the, the moral law. Which, again, people say today, let's get rid of this, these Ten Commandments. Strike them, from our, strike them from our public places. Get them off of our public buildings. We don't want to see them. And yet the church cries out, but we love the Word of God. We love the Word of God. I can remember as a really, really, really young pastor. Uh, I would be about 25 or 6 years old. Something like that. Middle 20s. Uh, the automobile was just invented. We had electricity. No. Uh, but when I was a young pastor, about, in about 1970... I was on break from college, and we went back to Pennsylvania, and we, my wife and I started a mission. And God was very gracious to us, and the little mission really grew, really grew. But I can remember one lady walked up to me in church. She says, Pastor, she says, how come... My son doesn't know the Ten Commandments. Your job is to teach my son the Ten Commandments. And I, re I replied to the lady. I says, ma'am, I think that that should be taught at home. We say that we love God. And we say that we love other people. Yet, how do we prove our love for God? Those first four commandments are Godward. They're, they're vertical. They point up. They point toward God. The first one is about God's priority. Have no other gods before him, right? The second one is no graven images. The third one is taking his name in vain. The fourth one is about worship, isn't it? It's amazing. We say we love God, but yet we, we, we plan all kinds of things in order to get people to come to church. And why do we need to do that? It seems like we get more people to church if we have casserole dinners than having the presence of God. But anyway, you say that you love God. But is God really our priority? That's the first commandment. No other gods. What other God do we put there? Do we put family there? Do we put experiences that we like to have there? Do we put vacations there? Do we put this or whatever else there? Uh, what do we like to do more than loving God? And, and what about graven images? What, what do we do? You know, sometimes that graven image might look like a, uh, a kind of an octagonal pigskin that you throw and catch. Or it could be a little spherical thing that you hold in your hand and make it curve and bend. 
what, what image do we have? Or maybe, and, the, and a bad one, is maybe we are very loose, loose with our tongue concerning taking God's name in vain. And let me ask you, how often do we OMG God? That's demoting him. When we OMG, you know, first, I, first when I first saw those letters, it's like, I don't even know what LOL means. Does that mean loud or love? I have no idea. And I don't care. You know, listen, I don't do computers. I almost learned, I almost learned how to turn one on one time. There's nothing wrong with pencil and paper, folks. There's nothing wrong with a book in your hands. That's just me. But anyway, what do I know? But people with this OMG, listen, folks, you're demoting God. You're demeaning him. Don't take his name in vain. And what about coming to church? Don't forsake the assembling yourselves together. Folks, you say you love God, then we should do those things. And we say we love other people. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet. There ought to be something peculiar about us that we don't do those things. That we actually show our love for God and our love for other people. Those are the Ten Commandments. What would be wrong with any nation living under that kind of a law? Where you offer to people dignity and respect and courtesy. Even if you are driving your car and people are passing up willy-nilly. Offer respect and dignity and courtesy. So the Ark of the Covenant had these commandments, and, but they failed to look at them. What, he, what the Philistines looked at was the curse that this Ark brought. When Israel looked at it, they didn't see it as a curse. They didn't see it as death. But the, that Ark to them, especially those wars that were in them, were life. They were God's chosen people. They said, this is life. And Philistia looked at it and says, this is death. I ask you, friends, when you look at this, is this life or is this death to you? Would you want this removed from our nation? Or would you want this in every household in all of America that people would pick it up and read it and believe it? What would you want? Felicia said, let's get rid of it. It's bringing ruin to our nation. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says, To one an aroma from death to death, and to the other an aroma of life to life. What is it to you? The question that the ark's captors had to answer was, how long were they willing to fight against God? Friends, listen. No one has ever hardened their heart against God and prospered by it. It just ain't going to happen. Even by death, even by and through death, God will have his last say. You can't escape him. 
Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men once to die, and after that comes judgment. Friend, is God in his word a matter of life to life for you, or is it a matter of death to death? Let me tell you about a matter of life to life, because that's how I want to conclude today. Not on a sour note, but on a positive one. Life to life means I have come to know that Jesus Christ died for my sins on a cross, that he was buried and he was, had, had risen on the third day. He's ascended into glory, and Jesus Christ is coming back. Folks, that's the good news. Jesus died, he rose again. The good news, the good news. Does that good news reside within you? Is it in your heart? And friend, if it is not, would you today acknowledge the fact that Jesus Christ is God? Rather than saying, I need to get him out of my life, you're saying, I need to get him into my life. Would you do that today?